0: Welcome to my podcast. I'm really excited today about the topic and the terrific author that we have with us. John Izzo is the best-selling author of six books and has advised over 500 companies across the globe on creating high-engagement, purpose-driven workplaces. He has personally spoken to over a million people, and his work has been featured by the likes of Fast Company, Investor's Business Daily, CNN, Inc. Magazine, and the Wall Street Journal. John has been a pioneer in understanding the future of workplace trends and what companies must do to succeed in the rapidly shifting world of new expectations. Twice already in his career, he was a pioneer, both in employee engagement and corporate social responsibility with his book, Awakening Corporate Soul, and changing employee values with his book, Values Shift. Today we're privileged to have John here to talk about his latest and just released book,
1: The Five Thieves of Happiness. Welcome, John. Welcome. Thank you, uh, Nate. Great great to be here. Looking forward to our conversation.
0: Fantastic. And uh, you're hailing from Vancouver today.
1: Yeah, in Vancouver. I split my time between uh, Vancouver, Canada and Southern California. So uh, I'm up here today. And, uh, you know, yeah, so it's great. Well, two wonderful places to be. Indeed.
0: John, you've written six best best-selling books about leadership, purpose and fulfillment. So will you let my reader or my listeners know what is special about The Five
1: Thieves? What are you most excited about with this book? Well, you know, uh, books are kind of like children, you know. uh, know, Each of them is special in their own way, right? Uh, And you don't really love one more than the other. But, uh, you know, the new arrival is always kind of representative of where you're uh, personally uh, at in your own life and journey and uh, i think what's so special about the five thieves of happiness is that i think it addresses a question that uh, i and many people struggle with why is it so difficult to have sustainable happiness and fulfillment and contentment you know many of us kind of go in and out of you know that sense of happiness and contentment why is it so difficult to sustain it and I argue in this book that it has to do with these five mental mindsets that rob us of our natural happiness. That when these these uh, these mindsets dominate, and it actually came out of a self-imposed nine-month sabbatical that I went on uh, and walked the Camino de Santiago in northern Spain, and spent three months in the uh, in the Sacred Valley in Peru in the Andes. Uh, so uh, so it's special in that way. And the second thing, Nate, is that I believe our whole world right now humanity is struggling with you know in spite of our good nature why are so many bad things happening in the world why in the United States can we not talk about our differences without you know you know speaking in words of hatred and anger at each other why is terrorism rising all over the world why in spite of all of our wisdom are we kind of running like buffalo off a cliff in terms of sustainability of the earth and so I argue in this book that the same five thieves that rob us of our personal happiness are actually the very same things that are robbing humanity of our greatest potential. So I'm excited because I believe this book represents a kind of threshold of the conversation we have to have individually and as a society.
0: Wow, thank you. Thank you. That's, um, I want to ask you a little bit more about this journey, this trek that you went on where you received mm-hmm. a lot of inspiration uh, for the book. So you use the word thieves, and that's an interesting metaphor. I'm curious, why do you call them thieves, and how do they steal our happiness?
1: Yeah, well, I call them thieves because um, uh, of this idea. What is a thief? A thief is someone who takes from us something that's already ours, right? Um, So if you think about it, a thief can't take something from you that you don't already have. And so I started thinking about the fact that a lot of the happiness literature makes it sound like happiness is, is this heroic, difficult quest, right? And the kind of underlying assumption is that we must be naturally unhappy. Otherwise, why would we have to go on this giant, you know, hero's journey to find happiness? And the same thing even in humanity, right? If you read the daily news, you know, you'd kind of believe that humans are mostly a dog-eat-dog species. When in fact, uh, the history of humanity shows that we probably survived uh, most likely because we were compassionate cooperators, that in fact, the history of humanity is not one of evil, but mostly one of unparalleled cooperation uh, for any species that's ever existed on the planet. And so the reality is that I called them thieves because I started thinking, if our natural nature is to be happy, and if you doubt that, think about a child, how easily an infant smiles at the world, right? How easy it is to please a child. All the child really needs is food and love, and they have that natural happiness, right? And, And so anyway, I called them thieves because they rob us of what we already have. And because if these indeed are thieves, there's only one thing to do with a thief. You've got to stop them, arrest them and throw them out of the house. And so that's kind of what I talk about in the book. How do we, you know, notice these thieves who often come as. And one last thing, Nate, is thieves often come with a great disguise. If we knew a thief just by the outfit they wore, then, in fact, it wouldn't be hard to keep them out of the house. But like a good thief, these mindsets come disguised as something that is good for us when it turns out they're going to rob us. So for that, those three reasons, I thought it was a nice metaphor. And who doesn't want to get rid of a thief?
0: No, wonderful. And, and again, I, I
1: want to emphasize how you've taken that metaphor
0: and used, used that also to give specific practical advice with each of the five thieves on how do you recognize them, how do you kick them out of your house, keep them from coming back. And so uh, there are very practical applications of that metaphor, and thank you for that.
1: Um, Yeah, yeah, it's really important. When I wrote the book, I realized it wasn't enough to name the thieves, right? You know, Because for most people, uh, when I name the thieves, they go, oh yeah, I get it, that those thieves are a problem for me. So I knew that I had to, um, both for myself, because I think writers always write, first of all, for themselves. You know, um, so I'm trying to get rid of the thieves in my life. So I ask, how do you get rid of the thieves? Right. And so I I appreciate what you said, because I the the initial reviews of the book, uh, a lot of people have said the most helpful thing for them uh, is the simple technique I teach for, you know, really noticing and getting rid of the thieves. So I think this is really important. It's one thing to know what's robbing your happiness. It's another thing to train yourself to uh, make sure they're not running the house.
0: Yeah. And boy, I appreciate your use of the word compassion as kind of our natural state and the way in which humans have thrived for, for thousands of years. Um, I'm that's, that's an important word to me, as my listeners will know, so I appreciate you sharing that. So people are probably pretty curious um, about the train whistle in the background. <laughs> they might hear this. I actually work in a train station, and so we, we have trains, and that is our natural right, cool. state Let's here go. in Kansas. Um, so people might be curious about these thieves that we've been talking about, and uh, what I'd like to do is is, is is you talked about several of these thieves actually as you were figuring this out on your trek and, and on your journey, you observed that they were actually stealing from you right in the moment, and you, were, you shared a couple great case studies. Would you describe very briefly these five thieves and maybe give one or two examples about how they robbed you on your journey?
1: Sure. So uh, so, yeah, so maybe it's helpful to actually uh, maybe I'll just go through and name the five thieves and then and then kind of like give you an example, especially in my walk on the Camino uh, of how they they I I noticed these thieves. So the five thieves are control, which is the desire to uh, be able to control the outcomes of our life and the frustration that happens when when we're not able to control life. And so we wind up being in resistance to whatever's happening instead of surrendering to whatever's happening. The second uh, is uh, conceit, and conceit is really this sense of separation, this focus on my singular story. Am I happy? You know, uh, you know, uh, who am I? Uh, what's going to happen to me when I die? You know, it's really the ego. It's when we're focused on seeing ourselves as separate from everything as opposed to a part of a bigger conversation that we don't have to distinguish ourselves from. We just have to join that big conversation. The third is the thief of consumption, which is the belief that happiness is found outside of myself in anything, in a relationship, in a person in uh, a thing I might buy or a position I might achieve, rather than the realization that happiness is an internal choice to choose contentment available to us at every moment. The fourth thief is the thief of coveting, the thief that keeps us with envy, looking at the world, thinking about what we don't have instead of what we do have, thinking, well, if only I had this, or if only I had that, or if only I had more Facebook likes than you do, or you know, more followers than you do on Twitter, I'd be happy. Uh, when in fact, life is not uh, a contest, but a life is about us being most true to ourselves and not how we reference to the rest of, of uh, the world. And the final thief, the thief of comfort, which is the thief that keeps us in patterns that no longer serve us, patterns that perhaps at one time in our life made sense, but no longer really serve us, yet we continue to do them because the thief wants us to stay in that rut riding a horse going somewhere that we don't even want to go. So let me give you a practical example of how those thieves showed up. Uh, you know, I walked the Camino, um, which is a 750-kilometer, 550-mile uh, walk across northern Spain uh, that uh, Christians have been taking for about 1,200 years. But now today, people of all walks of, 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 of uh, persuasion walk this. And most people walk it because they're on some journey, you know, uh, to, of self-discovery. Um, And I walked it because I wanted to find the secrets to sustainable happiness for myself, right? Because I felt even after all these years of studying happiness, it still eluded me at times. So uh, the thief of control started showing up very early on the Camino. You know, um, the nature of the Camino is, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and I might walk, you know, uh, anywhere from, you know, uh, uh, 12 to like uh, 20 miles, 22 miles a day. Right. And I would have it set in my mind. Success is if I get to this village, you know, success will be if I have this experience. Um, I would meet people on the Camino and I would like them. Like my first two days, I I met these wonderful two young Germans and we walked together for like two or three days. And I thought, wow, I'm I'm probably going to walk with these guys for the whole Camino. Right. So I got fixated on these outcomes. I'm going to walk this many miles. I'm going to be there by this time. I'm going to stay at this place. I'm going to walk with these people. And yet, of course, the Camino had its own ideas, Sometimes I'd have an injury and I couldn't walk as long as I wanted, or I'd get to a particular village and the place I intended on staying was full or closed. Um, uh, These people who I walked with had their own ideas, of course, about where they wanted to walk and who they wanted to walk with and how long they wanted to walk on a particular day. And I found, Nate, that the more I fixated on these outcomes, instead of just experiencing the Camino and not not surrendering to whatever was at any moment, the more unhappy I was. And I came to a realization about four or five days into the Camino that all internal suffering is resistance to whatever is happening at any moment. I want to say that again because I think it's so important. All internal suffering is resistance to whatever's happening at any moment. And I talk in the control thief chapter about I'm not talking about becoming passive or not having intentions or goals in your life. It's the attachment to those outcomes, thinking that, well, if I don't walk with these people, if I don't arrive at this village, if I don't get this position, if this isn't how my day goes, I'm going to be unhappy. We have no control over the outcomes of our life, only our intentions and our actions so the more we can surrender to whatever's happening, the better it is. So that's an example of how the control thief showed up. Let me give you one more example. Again, I don't wanna walk through each of the thieves because I wanna have a good conversation with you, but um, the thief of conceit really showed up on the Camino as well. Because you know when you walk a, a, a path that people have walked for you know 1,200 years, thousands of people, uh, it's easy for you to get so focused on your story And I started thinking about, you know, there were times in the Camino where I would be walking for hours obsessing about my little story of happiness. You know, why can't I find happiness? Why is not my career going exactly the way I want it to go? And the interesting thing was after a while, I realized the less I thought about my life, the happier I was the more I just realized that, well, I'm just a part of this big conversation. I'm just one pilgrim on this giant path. And, I'm, and, and, and the, the height of that for me happened when I came to the highest point on the Camino. And it's a point where there's a big crucifix and a giant mound. And literally, when you get there, Nate, there are thousands and thousands of rocks that people have left there for over a thousand years. And the idea is you bring a rock from home and you put it there and it's supposed to symbolize something you want to let go of in your life. And when you get there, there's two possible reactions to seeing thousands of stones that have been there, put there for a thousand years. The first is, my God, what does it matter? You know, I'm just one person. Thousands of people have walked here for thousands of years after I die. People will walk here. I'm just one rock. You know, what does my rock really mean and, and how unimportant my life is? But I had a totally different experience when I got to that place in the Camino. I thought, wow, I'm actually a part of something really beautiful, something that began thousands of years before I arrived, something that will have a life thousands of years after I go. Uh, And my happiness comes from not distinguishing, like some people would put their rock there with a giant note, hoping that maybe for a thousand years, their note, their, their rock would distinguish itself. But I found quite the opposite. Could I place my rock there? and give up my need to focus just on my life, but somehow to join the bigger conversation. And, you know, it made me realize, Nate, that uh, in my previous book, The Five Secrets You Must Discover Before You Die, I talked about the great task of life is not to find yourself, but it's actually to lose yourself. It's to somehow realize, wow, I'm a part of a giant conversation, the experiment of life. And if I can join that and stop worrying about my little life for just a moment and instead be of service to the greater conversation. And and this is maybe an important point to say. In each of the thief chapters, I talk about the oppositional energy to the thief. So in the case of, of control, uh, the opposite energy is surrender. In the case of coveting, The uh, the oppositional energy is gratitude. Gratitude for myself and the success of others instead of focusing on I don't compare well. In the case of conceit, uh, the oppositional energy to conceit is service. So if I can be in service to the greater experiment of life, I'm going to be happy the more I focus on my little rock. And what I'm contributing, the more unhappy I'll be. So those are a couple of examples. And and again and again, the thieves would show up, uh, you know, even frankly, uh, it, when I would post pictures of my Camino and I would get caught up in, well, how many likes did I get? You know, and boy, my friends are getting more likes for their journey than I'm getting on mine, which was nothing but the thief of coveting, right? And the more I could celebrate the success of others instead of worrying about you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most liked of them all, the happier I was. So again, the the Camino and my later experiences in Peru uh, is really how these thieves really showed up for me. And I realized, wow, if I could get them out of the house, every day I became happier, the more I kicked these, these five thought patterns out of my uh, journey.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. One of, the, one of your quotes that has, has really, really hit home for me, I, control is one of the thieves that I, mm. I've just got all over my house. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, one of your quotes was, was that regret is trying to control the past and worry is about trying to control the future. And since we can't control them, uh, trying to only robs us of happiness. And that's been so, so helpful for me in terms of being focused on my intention in the moment about the things I can control and not trying yeah. to control the outcomes of my actions and yeah uh, it's wonderful yeah.
1: yeah you know two things about what you said uh, we recently did a webinar on the um on the five thieves an hour conversation with me and if people haven't had enough after today uh, they can go to weaving influence.com uh, or our website which i'll give later and find that but you we did a poll during the webinar, which thief is the one you struggle with the most? And 50% of the people said control. So including myself, right? Um, And so I think this is such an important one. And I think the point you made is so profoundly um, uh, on target, which is it's not that we we don't want to have intentions in our life, it's just recognizing we cannot control the outcomes of our life, right? all we can control are our intentions. And one of the early reviewers of the book said he was very relieved when he read that I wasn't saying, you know, um, you know, surrender all intentions, don't have any goals in your life, just passively accept what's happening. No, the point is that we can have intentions without attachment. We can have so desires, without believing those desire that achieving those desires is what brings us happiness, right? Because it's the desire for control that brings unhappiness, not the desire for having certain things happen in our lives. So simple example: I'm in a, I, I intend to get home at the end of the day, and I can't looking forward to being with my partner or time on the sofa, whatever it is. And suddenly I'm in a traffic jam when I didn't expect it, right? I I did my best to plan the route, I listened to the traffic radio, nothing wrong with that, but now suddenly I'm in a traffic jam. In that moment, my suffering really comes from wanting to control that outcome. And you use the past as an example. You know, two of the first cousins of the thief of control are regret and worry. So regret is actually, if you think about it, as you said, trying to control the past. Because you see, there's nothing wrong with thinking about the past but our desire to make it different will bring us misery you cannot control the past so right. you must surrender to the past remember all resist all suffering is resistance to what is we can't control the future by worrying and all the spiritual teachers yeah. from buddha to jesus you know and 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 rumi have talked about this very idea right i cannot control the future by worrying about it all i can do is ruin the present moment cuz what is worry about except trying to control the future yep. so these are first cousins of con- yep. the thief and he he li- he or she likes to bring them with them uh, when they come into your house yeah. so you've got to deal with all three of them i'm afraid on the thief of control well this
0: book couldn't have come at a better time for our company we are we are in the process we've wrapped up our budgeting process and our and our some really significant strategic planning for the next five years. And it's been a very important uh, thing for us to remember that we can focus on the actions that we take every day to um, move towards our intentions, but we can't control the outcomes. And uh, we, each day, we just focus on what we can do. And that brings me to the next question, which is um, you talked about conceit and control, this whole notion of comparing ourselves to people and, and somehow looking outside of ourselves for our value. One of of the ways that you mentioned that the thief of control kind of steals from us is to try to convince us that we can manage other people's perceptions of us, how people Mm -hmm. see us. And I'm reminded of another great book by the Arbinger Institute called The Anatomy of Peace. They call this the concept of the need to be seen as. Mm -hmm. And uh, you talk about it as trying to control other people's perceptions of us. Will you say a little bit about, a little more about this and how it can rob us of happiness?
1: Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, it's interesting. The um, There's a, 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 a word in Sanskrit, uh, 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 you know, that uh, is like a sticky desire, right? So the interesting thing is nothing wrong with desire, but a sticky desire is one that we get attached to. And one of the things we surely get attached to is controlling how others see us, right? Uh, and and again, we have no control over how others see us, right? So here's where the thieves kind of combine. So now imagine both of them are in the house. The desire to control how others see us, and let's say the coveting thief is also in the house and saying, well, Nate, uh, you know, not only should you be able to control how others see you, but that's the definition of success, is how others see you and how you compare with others, right? And so now you've got both thieves whispering one in each ye- ear and you're really in trouble, right? And so if instead you realize that there is no happiness in distinguishing yourself from others, only in being true to yourself, and you have no control anyway, other, how others see you or how you compare with others, all you can control are your intentions, then you begin to kind of see what's happening. And this kind of, I think, gets to this question of how do you get rid of the thieves? And the first thing is you've got to notice them. Because if you think about it, A thief can rob you most profoundly as long as they keep their disguise on. You know, if you knew someone who was a thief, right, it'd be very hard for them to rob you. You know, if you're on the street and you know Nate's the pickpocket, you know, versus John, you know, or opposite, you you got a a leg up. So the first thing is noticing these thieves. So, for example, when you start to compare yourself with others— and make that your reference point for success, you've got to, oh, that's the thief of conceit, of, of, of covening. When you start to think, you know, am I happy? What's going to happen to me when I die? My life is going to be defined by if I find happiness versus serving others, that's the thief of conceit, right? When you say, boy, I wish this person would think more highly of me or accept my apology or the traffic jam wasn't there. That's the thief of control. So the first thing is you you can't tame something if you can't name it. <laughs> so I hope what will happen if people read the book, and the initial readers are certainly saying this, you start to see them. Oh, I see, I see that thief whispering yeah. in my ear. Let me take the mask off. Yeah, no, wonderful. Um, I can't control you. My value is not how others see me. Um, uh, if I can join the, the bigger journey by serving, I'm going to be happy. So stop worrying about my own little story, whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And so seeing the thief and then stopping it. And, and this is an important point is that once you see a thief, you've got to arrest them. And these thoughts are natural. You know, there, there's nothing we can do to keep from having that first thought I always tell people we have a lot of control over whether we uh, give that thief a permanent bedroom in the house, you know, whether we, uh, you know, make a nice comfy home for them versus say, you know what? Here's the door. Yeah. Thank you. I, I'm, I see you. By the way, here's the door. Yeah. Right. And and when you first train your mind to do this, you might have to do that 50 times a day. Oh, hello, conceit thief. Hello, comfort thief. Hello, control thief. Sorry. Here's the door. But just like meditation, once you train your mind, suddenly the thieves stop showing up but it may take months and sometimes years to really get them out of the house but first is naming then stopping i 'm not going to let you be in charge wow. i 'm sorry
0: thank you thank you um, i want to I want to switch a little bit to some of the interpersonal and socio kind of economic Mm -hmm. implications because yeah your book focuses on both it's not just what's happening inside of me but in in how this affects my relationships in our community so i I am i'm i'm a glutton for watching how kind of the social sciences play out in the in the political and social career or, or arena you you talk about one of the things about the thief of control is that there's nothing wrong with having strong convictions and following them, but trying to control other people's moral convictions is where we cross the line and get miserable. So a question for the, for the listeners. How should politicians and religious leaders approach their work without being miserable all the time?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good question, right? And, and I appreciate your recognizing that, in, in many ways, this book, The Five Thieves of Happiness, is certainly going to help people find happiness themselves. Um, And and I I do believe that hell has certainly helped me. But in the book, I really tackle this question of if happiness is our natural state and compassionate cooperator is our natural state as a society, as a species, what's getting in the way of us really being as, as successful as we could be as humanity? And each of the thieves shows up in our community life and control is a big one, and especially in the United States. You know, where there is, uh, you know, such a, a negative, vitriolic, we, they public life now, right, and recently played out in this election, no matter who you were for, you have to be disgusted by the, the name calling and the, the, the inability to discuss our differences in a healthy way. And uh, and to me, the thief of control is in the room. And I talk in the book about a simple idea that has fascinated me over the years called cognitive dissonance. And that's the the, theory in psychology that as human beings, we like to have be in control of our reality. We don't want any dissonance. We we want to feel like our beliefs are the right beliefs. And we don't want a lot of noise because that's not, you know, feel good for us. And and why is it so hard for us to talk to people who disagree with us? Why is it so hard for us to entertain that someone else might have part of the truth, even though we have part of the truth? And I think it's the thief of control. We're afraid of not being in control. We're afraid that if I entertain your ideas, maybe I'll have to change. Maybe there'll be more noise in my internal system. And yet here's the irony. You can't have a productive society Nor can you solve complex problems if you're not willing to entertain ideas different than your own. You know, uh, Ben Franklin once said that compromise uh, does not make good heroes, but it makes for good democracy. (laughs) And, and, And having advised 500 companies, let me tell you that if most companies ran the way we act as citizens which is people pretty much saying, this is my position. I know I'm right. I don't want to talk to you if you disagree with me. Most companies would be out of business within a year. And yet that's the way we are in our public life. We, we so want to control how other people see things. We so want to not have any dissonance in our own viewpoint that we won't, in a healthy way, entertain the ideas of others. And it's causing massive destruction, not even just in the society, but in families. I mean, I've heard of family members who won't talk to each other anymore because they disagree on issues like guns or abortion or the environment or taxes, people who unfriend people on Facebook because they don't agree with my perspective. And here's my challenge to people that I talk about in the book. Look at the fear and the need for control that's driving your desire for others to agree with you. Begin to look at what's actually making it so hard for you to entertain that your ideas might not be the full truth. And of course, as you said, I'm a very spiritual person, but I say in the book, a religion controlled by the thieves is not a healthy religion. I'm not one of those people who believes that religion has been a negative force. In human history, I think it's mostly been a very positive force. But when a religion is hijacked by the thieves, uh, it winds up being a destructive religion. So oh, I think you. even religions and and belief systems can be hijacked by the five thieves.
0: Yeah, wonderful. No, that's great. And you know, speaking of our our society today, I've got I've got three three daughters, and they're all on social media. I'm on social media, mm. as if the as if the coveting thief of comparing ourselves to others wasn't bad enough already and now with all of this going on and you talk about coveting being a lot about comparing ourselves to others as the basis for our self-worth which sounds a lot like self-esteem to me and yes um i'm, I'm a student of that over the past i've studied a lot about it and and a lot has been written about some of this negative blowback we're getting from this self-esteem generation feeling entitled they don't know how to deal with loss and disappointment, and they don't know how to hard, work hard for what they want. What connections do you see between these things?
1: Well, um, uh, two points I want to make. One is you, you raise the issue of social media. And one of the things uh, I share in the book is some fascinating research about the role of social media and happiness. So it turns out that uh, there's a real uh, uh, discrepancy in the research. Some research shows that social media makes us less happy, and studies have shown that if people get off of Facebook, etc., most people wind up being happier than they were when they were on it. And this, of course, is the thief of coveting. You know, uh, why does Nate have more friends than I do? Why do they get more likes than I do? Why do you have more followers? Boy, my vacation pictures didn't get as many, you know, comments as yours did, you know. But the interesting thing is there's other research that shows that when people participate in social media in a giving way, So I participate celebrating your success, liking your photos, commenting on your experiences, having conversations about how we can make a difference together on issues on social media. That when people are involved in social media with a focus on giving, it actually makes you happier when you're on social media in the mode of, of observing and coveting, you're actually unhappy. So a fascinating part of the book, and I go into that in more detail. But, but to your uh, question about the millennials, uh, this is like another whole issue, of course. You know, um, but let me say that you know, uh, I always say that you know, a lot of the things we talk about uh, about the millennials are actually just what's happening in the society as a whole. So for example, the millennials, uh, the youngest generation is always the epicenter of whatever's happening in the society as a whole. So I would argue, Nate, that the millennials just have a, a greater um, uh, uh, a level of a virus we all have. So the virus of covening, the virus of our self-esteem coming from outside instead of inside, the virus of, of of an unwillingness to take personal responsibility for our happiness and success rather than blaming others. I believe this is a virus that's alive in the world and in our society, not just in the millennials, but every time you have a virus alive in the world, the youngest generation has a version of the virus. So one of the questions I would ask my baby boomer cohorts, of which I am one, and I have two millennial daughters, is who do you think they got the virus from? Right? Yeah. They didn't get the virus from, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Who did yeah. they get the virus from? They yeah. got it from us. So I think this is like, it's like that old pogo quote, you know, I have seen the enemy and it is us, right? So I think it's really important to recognize the millennials just have a virus in a greater degree, like every younger generation will, of yeah. whatever virus is running around in the culture as a whole. I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, sure, but I sure. think it's like a really important, yeah. uh, uh, you know, point.
0: So if we, all, if we all read your book and we all got rid of the thieves, that could have a dramatic impact on GDP.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think – and again, let, let's not give the book more credit than, it, uh, than it, that it deserves. But look, I think it's true that if each of us tamed, named and tamed these five thieves in our life, started kicking them out of our house – It would have a huge impact on our society if more and more of us focused on serving rather than uh, our own little life. If each one of us said, look, I don't need to be in control of others or of others' beliefs. I want to entertain their ideas. Uh, If each one of us said, look, you know, uh, I want to look at the patterns of my life that don't serve me, but I also want to look at the patterns of our society that no longer serve us. And on it goes. I do think by 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 dealing with our inner house, we create a different dynamic in the society, and that's why all the great teachers, again from you know East and West, have always said, "If you want to change the world, you better look at yourself. Yeah. You know If you want to change the world, you better get your own house in order, because, as I say in the book, our society and our world are nothing but writ large what each of us has in our own house. Yeah. And so if you want to change the world, you better begin with your own house. Um, uh, or as Jesus said, you know, get, get rid of the log in your own eye before you start trying to take the speck out of the eye of your neighbor. Right. Uh, so this is very ancient. Uh. Yeah.
0: Well, you, happiness is the theme for your book, but I don't want listeners or your readers to think that the goal of life is to just be happy all the time. You acknowledge that it's healthy and it's important for us to embrace the gamut of human emotions and, and there's, they're Okay. Well, even positive and negative ones. Will you share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, this is a really important point. I appreciate you uh, raising it. Uh, and I chose the word happiness for the title of the book, The Five Thieves of Happiness, as I say, with some trepidation. Because happy. the English word happiness actually comes from the old English word hap, as in happenstance, right? So the idea is if there were good happenings going on in your life, if you were lucky to have these good happenings, you'd wind up being happy. When, in fact, my book is about the polar opposite, that happiness is not out there. It's actually in here, uh, in the mindsets that we carry around, uh, you know, uh, into the world. Uh, And and so, you know, in 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 many ways, um, you know, I guess this this idea that uh, contentment is in, in in inside of us, that the goal of life is not to always have happy happenings in your life. And in fact, many times the most meaningful experiences of our life are not the moments when we are happy in the kind of, you know, oh, I'm happy today sense, right? Sometimes the most meaningful times of our life are moments of suffering, moments of uh, enduring, as Viktor Frankl said in his wonderful book, Man's Search for Meaning, of of the dignity of of bearing suffering nobly, right? And so uh, one of the questions I say in the book, it's quite possible within a very few short years at the pharmacy, there'll be an over-the-counter drug you can take that will make your brain emit happy chemicals so you would have the experience of being happy all the time. And the question would be, would that actually be a worthy human life? Or is part of what it means to be human, to experience sorrow, grief, suffering, Unhappiness, and, uh, and in fact, I think if many of us think about the most meaningful times of our life, they've often been moments when we have endured or nobly suffering or learned from those moments of challenge and suffering. You know, on the Camino, as I look back, Nate, I had a lot of happy moments, you know, drinking a beer, a cerveza with another pilgrim or, you know, some great happy conversation. But some of the most profound moments on the Camino were the moments when I didn't feel like walking anymore, when my bag was too heavy for me, uh, when I helped someone else who was really dealing with a burden. right? And so uh, the moments of greatest meaning on the Camino were often, uh, and in Peru, were often my hardest moments and the moments when I felt most human.
0: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um and that 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 brings to the next question is is how you know as an author we we, we both we both are authors and and i'm i'm re- one of the ways I'm relating um to your book and my journey is is it it sounds a lot like your book is really almost about your journey and and it can be for other people but it's it's also a way to learn about what's gone on with you and I'm curious oh, yeah. if you could share a little bit about how. How has this book been kind of like an autobiography for you at this time in your life? And how are you different now than before this happened?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a a great question. And uh, I always say writers write because we have to, right? Now, there are people, uh, you know, there are people maybe who write just because, well, it's time to put out a new book or, you know, it's going to, you know, but mostly writers write because we have to, right? And, um in some ways, uh, this book, which I didn't know it, I wrote this book faster than any book I'd ever written in my life, I literally sat down and some days I was writing five to 10 pages a day, it was just like rolling off of my fingers, right. And I think I realized that in many ways, this is the most personal book I've ever written in the sense that I think it's a culmination of almost 60 years of trying to understand where happiness and meaning could come from for myself and observing others. And uh, and and I'll tell you, um, uh, I am achieving a level of happiness and contentment right now that is uh, uh, unusual in my life. And I have to tell you that the circumstances of my life right now, you know, aren't necessarily the, hap- I don't have like a lot of miserable things going on, but objectively, this is not the most like, Happiest happenings in my life, right compared with maybe other times in my life But the internal happiness I have is profoundly different And I think uh, in a way in this book, I opened up the portal to let people see what I was struggling with Um, and Maybe that's the most meaningful part of the book is in a way I let people into that kind of look this is the struggle we all have, right? And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, in a way, it's a very personal book and uh, and representative of where I am in my life. And, um, uh, you know, I've been converted under my own teaching, right? So I'm, I'm seeing this now in a different way. So writing is a great way to um, see what's going on inside yourself. And if you're lucky, you write something that you share what's going on for yourself and others find is resonant with their experience. And so that's my hope with the book is that people say, well, yeah, I can relate to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate your transparency and your openness. And although this is a story about where you're at in your life, I, I think it will, the message will resonate with all generations, um, all all across the gamut. Before we wrap up, I'm wondering, is there any other questions you wished I would have asked or anything you really want listeners to know uh, a message you're just so passionate about getting out there?
1: Well, maybe two things. First of all, you've done a great job, so we've covered so much great territory, and I so appreciate your work and your inquisitive spirit and curiosity, which really shows, so I appreciate that. Um, so maybe only two things. One is, you said earlier, look, there's a lot of practical stuff in this book, so I think I want to really emphasize that that this book is a very practical guide. Yes, you're going to get great stories. Yes, you're going to hear and name the thieves. But there are some really practical things that you can do every day to notice, stop and replace these thieves with a different way of thinking in your life. The second thing really relates to this larger conversation. You know, I believe that we're at a critical moment in human history right now in human evolution. Uh, You know, we are such a noble species in so many ways, Uh, and yet, um, if you look at our situation right now, we've we've pushed the Earth and its environment to the cusp. The oceans are collapsing, the coral reefs are dying, the climate is changing, species are going extinct at, you know, a hundred times the normal rate, and many scientists are talking about the sixth great extinction. Uh, terrorism and misunderstanding are rising all across the world. It's not just about Islamic terrorism, just the kind of nature of our inability to deal with our differences in a positive way. So tribalism is rising its head at a time when we need to cooperate as a world, not just take care of our tribe, right? Uh, and, And so I think that Um, You know, the last thing I want to say is, look, we have such an opportunity now in our generation to um, to write the story of human history. I believe in the next 30 years, uh, what we do about these five thieves will determine the arc of human history and maybe even the the history of the earth. Um, And uh, we have a tremendous opportunity here. Let's not blow it. Um, So I guess that's the last thing I'd like to say is that, you know, again, even though this book is about happiness, uh, I believe happiness could save the world. If I mean by if we could tame these five thieves that rob our personal happiness in our community and communal life, we can actually have a wonderful future as a species. And now is the time. This is the moment, I believe, uh, that uh, it all is coming to fruition. Uh, And every generation may think that, I think it's actually true of our generation. If we get us through this next window in a positive way in the next 30 years, I think the future for humanity and the earth is profoundly beautiful. If we don't, it could be profoundly miserable. And I don't think that's hyperbole. So this yeah. is an important moment for us to entertain these thieves and name them for what they are.
0: Well, John, you're like a, like a modern-day prophet, and I don't say that. I don't mean that in a <laughs> religious or, a, yeah. or or highfalutin sense. What I mean is that you— we need voices in every generation that are revisiting the truths we've known forever and rebringing our attention and repackaging and freshening and co- compelling us to take action on the things we've known. And so this book is a fantastic beautiful articulation of that. Before we sign off, will you share with the audience where can they get your book and how can they connect with you for more inspiration?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, again, I'd love you to get the book. I'd love you to email us and tell you what you think about the book once you get it. You of course can get it at Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, BarnesandNoble.com. It's going to be in stores at Barnes and Noble and Hudson's across the country uh, right now. and uh, and in stores really all over the world uh, then uh, you can reach me at drjohnizzo.com that's just d r j o h n i z z o.com no period after the doctor www.drjohnizzo.com Uh, and uh, you can reach me that way. uh, And uh, we'd love to hear from you and and love to. And on our website, you can also sign up for these uh, kind of uh, every few week tips we send about life and and about uh, leadership. So I'd love to connect with people. And please get the book and get the book for someone in your life who you think um, perhaps has these thieves hanging around. Right. I think you know, giving the gift of happiness to someone else is a pretty profound thing to, uh, to do.
0: Well, it's making the rounds in our office, and I can highly recommend it. Uh, John, it has been a real privilege to learn from you today and be part of the, the launch of your terrific new book.
1: Um, well, well, thank you, and thank you again for uh, your support of it and for your great work uh, in the world as well. And look, let's, uh, let's t- name the thieves, tame the thieves, find more happiness in our life, and together build a better future. And thanks for the prophet uh, comment. I'm one of only many, uh, but I've always hoped to be a prophetic voice, uh, uh, and so thank you for, uh, for that comment.
0: You're so welcome. I wish you great success in spreading this message that we can achieve greater happiness by getting out of our own way. Um, and thanks to all my listeners. As always, if you have ideas or people you think should be in my podcast, drop me a line. And thanks again, John. And will you say goodbye to everyone for me?
1: I wish everyone a, a, an amazing day, an amazing year, and, and the thieves to leave your house once and for all. So thanks so much for for giving us part of your life.